0: Hey, welcome to the show. The program is brought to you by great sponsors like my friends at FireSteel.com and also uh, our friends at uh, the uh, Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I'm going to take just a second here to tell you about the FireSteel device. Actually, they have a number of different devices. I've got the GobSpark here right in front of me. It is, It's a steel rod with a striker. I'm sorry, I guess it's a rare earth... Uh, rod with a striker, it throws an incredible spark. And this one rod that I've got here would easily fit in your pocket and replaces about uh, 15,000 matches. I mean, how many boxes or books of matches can you really carry with you? But you can carry this with you. It works even when it's wet. You just wipe it off, strike that spark and have a fire. Something you should have as part of your uh, survival or preparedness, uh, you know, preparations. You can get one, by going to FireSteel.com. Again, FireSteel.com. So I I did something today that uh, I really never really thought I would have on my bucket list, but yeah, I went and and got uh, tested for COVID-19. And that's not a confession like, oh my gosh, she has got it, because there goes my social life, such as it were. But I had some symptoms and thought, you know, probably better get this checked out. Now, in the meantime, I'm waiting. So I got to I got to find out 24 to 48 hours, they say, before I can get the results back. But, you know, I've heard horror stories about, well, they take this big Q-tip and they shove it all the way up your nose until your brain stops it. And then they push it a little bit further. And I I guess for some people, it feels like that. It wasn't painful, but it was really uncomfortable only because I don't think I have ever had anything tickle as much as that Q-tip did making its way back to uh, my brain, or I guess the, the back of my sinus. Yeah, it was like the worst sneeze you've ever had to do all at once, and you have to sit there and, and hold it for about uh, oh, I don't know, you know, five seconds or so while the technician is turning the the swab and getting all the you know necessary stuff to test you. So uh, it's, it's the kind of experience I know a lot of you have experience with. In fact, I, I texted a friend while we were waiting in line. My wife and I both got tested, and he says, yeah, I've had it done three times. And the way he said it, I just got the impression that it never gets more fun with every time you get tested. But I'll keep you posted if anything interesting happens. Look, I don't want i don't want to sound flip because I don't want to, you know, minimize you know, people who have, have suffered tragedy or seen people, you know, either incapacitated or debilitated or die from COVID-19. It wouldn't be funny to them. But as I'm sitting there thinking, well, okay, so... What if I get a positive result? You know, I'm consoling myself with the idea that I have a 99.8% chance of surviving. I also heard that Glenn Beck was uh, recently tested positive for it as well. So, take it for what it's worth. Maybe I'm just trying to be a little more like brother Beck, huh? We could we could always say that. Okay, 801-331-8113 is my number. What we want to talk about today, well, there's a lot. I thought we would start with how to shape yourself into the perfect weapon against the Empire. Now, that sounds pretty subversive, right? But I'm not talking about, yes, you know, you must, you know, strap explosives to yourself and go blow yourself up for, you know, the honor of the rebellion. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Caitlin Johnstone, who is... One of my favorite commentators, even though there's a lot of places where she and I have, have very different views on, on what the world is or should be. She is a straight shooter. I respect her for that. And I think she is dead on when she gives advice on it. Look, do you want to be effective at, at making a stand and being the kind of person who has real and lasting impact? You know, the places where we disagree. OK, we can work that out down the road. But on this. She's right. It's something you have to be willing to work at. And she starts with a question. Do you want to win this thing? Actually win it. And she says, by that, I mean, do you actually want to create a healthy world where we are ruled by, instead of a world, rather, where we're ruled by lying, murderous, warmongering, oppressive, ecocidal, omnicidal sociopaths? Well, when you put it that way, she says, you know, is that something you truly deeply want? And she says it's okay if you don't, but at least be real with yourself about it. She says a large percentage of the people who get involved in revolutionary political movements and criticism of establishment power structures, if they were honest with themselves, would admit that they do so not out of a sincere desire to replace the sociopathic ruling empire with something that benefits all life on this earth, but out of a desire to feel good about themselves. In other words, it's not a real battle for them. It's more of a titillating ego game. It's a hobby, no different from any other. And she has an article that that she linked to. Dissident circles too often become another nerdy hobby group. Her thinking is politics should change you. Revolutionary thought should transform you. Dismantling established narratives about the world should dismantle your own narratives about yourself. She says, if this is you, that's fine. Humanity's asleep in a whole host of ways. It wouldn't be fair to single you out as uniquely awful when you're really not different from the vast majority of people. But she says, at the very least, please do try to be real with yourself about it. And if this is not you, and she says, if you really are in this fight to win it, then you should, you should be spending every day doing everything you can to hone yourself into the perfect weapon in that fight. Now, if this were a revolution that is fought with physical weaponry, well, then you should be training every day to use those weapons effectively in that revolution. But she's quick to point out this is not a revolution that's being fought with physical weaponry. The front line of this revolution is propaganda and guerrilla psi war that we're fighting against it. Caitlin Johnstone says, as I never tire of saying, the only thing keeping the imperial status quo in place is Propaganda. People would never consent to the exploitation, inequality, and murderousness that's intrinsic to the U.S. centralized empire if they weren't propagandized into consenting to it all. And all that's required to end that consent is to wake people up to the reality that they're being propagandized because manipulation only works if you don't know that it's happening. Does that make sense? Does that ring true with you? And by the way, feel free, if it doesn't, call in and let's talk about it. 801-331-8113. Caitlin Johnstone says, if we can get enough energy behind a populist guerrilla psywar war against the establishment propaganda machine, which so many of us are already fighting toward in many ways without even realizing it, we can break the public trust in the establishment propaganda machine so that their manipulations become ineffective. In a military revolution, you would train your body and your weapons to fight or train with your body and your weapons to fight and kill the enemy. But in a psywar, war, you have to train your mind. That means you have to educate your mind about what's really going on in the world. Never stop learning. Never rest in confidence. You've got it all figured out. You can have the feeling that you totally know what's true, or you can have a humble devotion to trying to learn the truth as best you can from moment to moment. But she says you can't have both. You must hone your inner sense maker so that you can perceive reality lucidly amid the confusion and obfuscations of a society that's saturated in propaganda. You must train your mind to focus so that your mental energy is not diffuse. Make time each day to meditate so that you can point the full power of your mind at this battle and learn to become present in each moment. She says you must know yourself and understand your inner landscape so that you understand what makes you tick. If you understand your inner dynamics, you can understand how you've been fooled in the past and could be fooled in the future. And more importantly, you understand how you fool yourself. And you'll understand how other people are fooled by powerful manipulators as well. She says you must heal your inner wounds so you don't bleed out energy that you'll need to win this fight. You need to be able to point yourself at winning this fight. And you can't do that when you're bogged down by inner misery and neuroses, as we all are without having done extensive inner work. Caitlin Johnstone says you must focus on the true fight without getting sucked up in drama and sectarianism, as ends up happening with pretty much every revolutionary movement these days. Don't fall into any herd mentality. Don't get excited about the hot topic of the day. Don't bleed out your energy toward infighting with people who basically align with you. It's not hard to see who the real bad guys are in this world. And she says if you're focusing your firepower on anyone but them, then you're inadvertently realizing, real, revealing rather, that you don't truly care about this fight. Mainstream media reporters, she said, have a much higher body count than all serial killers and terrorist organizations combined. Wow, that's harsh. But she says they don't deserve respect. Their institutions should not exist. Take their power away from them bit by bit, grain by grain, by becoming better and more influential than they are. Do this by mastering your weaponry. Do this by honing yourself into the perfect enemy of the empire. I know that's pretty militant language, but I think she has a point here that's well worth considering. It's a battle of ideas, it is a battle of philosophy, and it's a battle for allegiance at this point. What are you doing to understand your own and to win over other people's allegiance?
1: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. So, yeah, getting things started with a little column there from Caitlin Johnstone. I will include it in the show notes. I didn't read the whole thing. I just gave you some excerpts, but you can find the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll also find some other great articles that we may or may not have time to get to in the remainder of this hour. The idea here, and look, I... I kind of hesitate to use, you know, this very militant language. This is war. we got to fight ourselves on a weapon. You know, there's there's so much politicians use this particularly around election time. You know, everything is just so militant in the way that they talk. And yet I think that t- there's something to be said for recognizing that the battle that's playing out before us. Doesn't need warriors in the streets to go fight Antifa or Black Lives Matter or, you know, any of the any of the groups that are out there rioting right now, so much as it needs people who are capable of fighting a, a battle within the marketplace of ideas. How effective a warrior would you be if you were called upon to exert your effort in promoting sound ideas, sound principles? Oh, don't worry. I feel I feel the the weight of that challenge, too. Like, I don't know how how good would I be? How effective would I be? But I'll tell you that I believe strongly enough in it that I I seriously put nearly every waking moment of my life toward being prepared to, to be able to speak the truth when it counts, to be able to explain when someone has a question, to be able to stand when someone must stand. And I don't see any of that like yeah it's just as easy as you know falling off a chair it's not. You can't share something you can't share light that you yourself don't have. And so if you feel a little bit deficient maybe that's a call to step your game up, step up your understanding. Let's open up the lines here 801 331 Ray is standing by. Ray, what's on your mind today?
2: Thank you, Brian. Um, wow. well, <laughs> my mind is racing. Now, you said you said her name is Caitlin. John Stone.
0: John Stone. Yep. She's from Australia.
2: From Australia. Well, I've got to look into her. She has really got my mind racing. Um, Let me see if I could cap this uh, uh, in a small way. Um,
0: Now, I'm going to warn you, Ray. Caitlin, Caitlin is uh, she's a very direct writer, meaning that this is my this is the only warning I will offer. Sometimes she uses pretty salty language to get her her oh, point across, but she's a clear oh, really? enough and and straight enough shooter that uh, that I'm willing to endure the occasional f bomb that that sometimes crops up in her columns, in order to get to the truth that also crops up in in her uh, her columns.
2: Well, I appreciate that, and that's okay because I work with truck drivers. Okay, and well, I, uh, <laughs>
0: then yeah, I, I your, your immunity is probably higher than than some then.
2: I I try very hard not to absorb that because when I'm at church with my neighbors, I don't want to slip some of those words (laughs) in front of the kids and everything. But uh, let me see, to the point, Um, okay, growing up, sure, I mean, situational ethics. I mean, you know, what's the world about Um, experiencing everything, you know, getting my hands burned many, many times in the fire that you know i have to say to, to jump jump cuz lack of time you know i highly respect gandhi and i highly respect martin luther king now now they got into the fight but they they weren't militant okay they they resisted in a passive way and, and this is powerful and, and of course all the a lot of the philosophers throughout this article, that the greatest philosopher of all is Jesus Christ and he's much more than that to me than just a philosopher but I mean he taught a way of life you know um, love of all man kind that that okay back to the point Um, when I was young playing Monopoly with my older brothers and sisters I always lose and then finally I, I, I caught on and I read the rules and then when I read the rules quite a few times and then I started to understand the strategy behind the game, I finally started winning. You know, and I was trying to play a game that I didn't know the rules and I didn't know the strategy. Um, so, again, back of time, I'm going to have to jump forward. And that is, you know, living in the world, you know, I didn't know what evil was. I didn't know what good was. I didn't know what felt good was to me. And I I seem to know what made people happy, what made people sad, that, you know, jumping really to the heart of the the matter is, um, you know, I, I found out that the Bible wasn't superstition. Now, maybe I just lost some of your listeners there. I know we've been taught in school and everything that science you can trust in the Bible superstition. But actually, there's a lot of lessons of life in the Bible, and I I started running out of time experiencing life for myself, and I found out that I could learn from other people's experiences. I could learn from other people's mistakes.
0: Bingo. And
2: I could save save hundreds, thousands of lessons in years by learning from other people's mistakes, you know, And, and so... I I guess I just want to cap on this, that once I finally figured out what good is and what evil is, I could finally take a stand in life. And taking a stand in life, you know, you love everybody, but you have to put up, you know, walls. You have to put up doors, you know. I mean, you got to be careful. We can absorb the light around us. Or we can absorb the darkness around us. we can take in the light or we can take in the darkness and we have to be very careful to identify what is darkness and don't take it in and practice it and live in that darkness or or take in the light and be very careful and then try to practice living in the light.
0: I'm with you, Ray. thank you so much i I'm with you it's and and I think he nails it too and the 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 battle. You know, even though it's a battle of ideas primarily that, that, that we're engaged in, it's always been a contest between light and darkness. And for, if, that's, if that's a little too spiritual for some, I mean, I, I can't think of a more neutral way to state it other than that's been the dynamic that has driven, you know, any conflict throughout human history. And the, the thing that uh, I think it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn pointed out in his uh, Gulag Archipelago Was you can't just say, well, but the darkness is strictly, you know, within the Democratic Party or it's within the people in this country or that country. It doesn't work that way. That battle between light and darkness, that battle between good and evil. The line between those two concepts goes right through the middle of your heart and my heart. Which means every one of us has some amount of influence on whether or not evil will enter the world through us. Now, here's the key. You're not going to stop evil from entering this world. It's a part of this world. It's a part of this realm, if you will. And it's a necessary part. But the best people you meet are the people who have learned that, yes, I could choose to be a not good person, but I choose to be the best person that I can be because I'm determined that I'm not going to let darkness come into this world through me. We're all somewhere on that continuum. We're all somewhere, you know, in, in terms of learning, you know, what our, what our job is or what our role is, our mission, if you will. When we come back from the break here in a moment, I want to talk about how in the marketplace of ideas, this is where you really need to focus your skills. Look, I, I'm a firm supporter in the right to keep and bear arms. I think you should have skill at arms. I think you should have skills to handle problems as they come up but if you really want to have lasting impact you've got to become the kind of person who can convey the principles and practices of life liberty private property freedom of conscience all those things that matter so much and do it in a way that you're not bludgeoning people into accepting them it's it sounds really tough and it can be especially when there's a lot of people who just don't want to hear it some people thrive on conflict some people are enemy driven It's not just those on the left, by the way. There's a lot of folks who are enemy driven. But if you can lose the need to win, if you can learn to speak the truth with love, you can have that kind of lasting impact. We're going to talk about the marketplace of ideas when we come back.
1: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian
0: Hyde Show. 801 331 8113, if you'd like to call in. If you're catching the podcast, that's not going to be an option. But I do appreciate you listening and joining our growing gathering of wrong thinkers. It's good to challenge the narrative, and it's there's something very interesting that happens when people do stand up. And I don't mean you know get militant and get out there with pitchforks and torches and you know bare knuckles in the streets, but just simply when you bring something to the marketplace of ideas, it makes things happen. Here's a, here's an example of it. I don't know if you were aware of this, but uh, city councils across America have uh, have really had to struggle lately with uh, how do we accommodate being sufficiently woke but not uh, you know not compromising and and becoming so so obviously uh how can i put this pandering that that people you know reject us and people say you know what i can't trust anything you're doing you're just doing this to try to to pander to a certain demographic case in point anders koskinen writing for intellectualtakeout.org has an article from the Washington Post. Actually, he talks about an article from the Washington Post reporting that a Black Lives Matter street mural, which stood for a month and a half and greeted President Trump when he flew in for a campaign rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, has now been ordered washed away by the Tulsa City Council. Now, you're probably asking yourself, whoa, why would they do that? Do they not understand how they're opening themselves up to accusations and maybe repercussions from the cancel culture mob? Well, it wasn't a change of heart on the BLM message. Tulsa County Republican Party officials had apparently approached the Tulsa City Council and said, Hey, we were wondering about the possibility of painting back the blue on a nearby street in support of the Tulsa Police Department. And the city council refused despite having turned a blind eye to the permitless Black Lives Matter mural for weeks. Stuck in a double standard, they ordered the removal of the existing mural. And the point here that Anders Koskinen is trying to make is that city councils across America seem intent on proving the best cure for a bad idea is a good idea, but they're going about it in a kind of interesting new way. Now, Councillor Connie Dotson, According to the Washington Post said, oh, I applaud it. It's great. But at the same point, it comes down to, yes, if you allow one, then you have to allow all of them. And I guess last week, a similar decision was made by city officials in Redwood City, California, after a local attorney requested permission to paint MAGA 2020 on a street neighboring that city's own Black Lives Matter street mural. Now, Anders Koskinen says the effectiveness of asking to paint a mural with slogans countering the political aims of Black Lives Matter is in sharp contrast to vandalism attempts to cover up their street art. And you've seen that happen as well. For example, the mural in front of Trump Tower in New York City has been defaced multiple times, and it just keeps getting repainted with the latest vandal being arrested and charged with criminal mischief. How dare you vandalize someone else's vandalism? In Cincinnati... The artists of a BLM mural are restoring their vandalized work even while police are investigating the crime. Meanwhile, a district attorney's office will be charging the vandals of a Black Lives Matter street mural in Martinez, California with three misdemeanor counts, including a hate crime. Now, if they're convicted on those charges, that could mean up to a year in jail. Anders Koskinen says attempts to place contrary speech on America's city streets have been very effective at countering Black Lives Matter's rhetoric. Mere vandalism, on the other hand, just served to re-energize BLM supporters and cost vandals a great deal as they run afoul of the law. So despite what you may have heard in contemporary political movements and the mainstream media, there's still a right and wrong way of doing things. America has always valued the free exchange of ideas, the marketplace of ideas. And Anders Koskinen says now is not the time to abandon that. He brings a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes. It was a dissent written in Abrams v. United States. Supreme Court Justice Holmes stated to allow opposition by speech seems to indicate that you think the speech impotent. As when a man says that he has squared the circle, or that you do not care wholeheartedly for the result, or that you either power you, you doubt either your power or your premises. But he says, when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. That, he says, at any rate, is the theory of our Constitution. It is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. Every year, if not every day, we have to wager our salvation upon some prophecy based upon imperfect knowledge. And while that experiment is part of our system, he says, I think that we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death, unless they so immediately threaten immediate interference or so imminently threaten immediate interference with the lawful and pressing purposes of the law that an immediate check is required to save the country, So if we are to lose this theory of our Constitution, says Anders Koskinen, this belief in the marketplace of ideas, our rhetoric, already toxic enough, will only get worse. Perhaps instead of dealing with those with whom we disagree by shutting them down, we would be better off to propose alternatives. He says, at this stage of America's political life, how many of us can even imagine a world in which we build up instead of merely tear down? So put in a call to your city council. Perhaps a line of reason, rather than a violent emotion, is just the thing they need to have the courage to utilize their own common sense. And he says it can't hurt to try. I do like that approach, and I think it's far more effective. And it does show, too, that in some cases, you're going to find that uh, there's a very clear double standard at work. You may actually force their hand to where they have to show, yeah, we have a double standard here. Kind of like we saw with, uh, you know, it's okay for people to go out and protest. But it's not okay for you to get together and say, hey, government, your response to coronavirus is killing our businesses or killing our ability to, to gather to worship. rather than a head-on assault i like this approach a lot better and the idea isn't isn't the idea more than just vanquishing those who stand in your way to help bring people to understand things the way that you do just asking now on a similar note and i'll have a link to this one as well this is from martin armstrong from armstrong economics Oh, you're going to love the title here, The Media's Conspiracy Against the People. I don't think he's misusing the word here. Because he's talking about YouTube moderators with no medical background to even determine if what's being said is true are now censoring doctors who challenge or contradict the World Health Organization and Bill Gates. And Mr. Armstrong says it's totally outrageous how these social media companies are conspiring against the people to censor things they have no expertise in reviewing. This is purely a policy decision, which would be hate speech if they promoted that anyone within some race was evil. They even removed Trump's retweet of the doctors who staged a press conference in front of the Supreme Court. So since this involves the health and welfare of all people, they claim, they have a right to impose their own political views. If someone dies because they were refused hydroxychloroquine because of the media, well, then the media should be held responsible. Martin Armstrong says the media has grossly misrepresented the threat of COVID-19, which clearly shows they are trying desperately to spark a political coup. Whereas if the Russians did this, they would demand investigations, not war. On average, he says Democrats appear to be deeply biased and live in fear of COVID-19, while people aged 55 and older account for 92% of all deaths. Those people aged 44 and younger account for only 2.7% of all deaths. Democrats have been seriously misinformed and overestimate the risk of death from COVID-19 for people under the age of 24, assuming it's a 50-50 chance when the real risk remains people aged 65 and older. He says never in the history of the United States has such a misinformation propaganda comp- campaign been waged against the people by the media. Now, he reported about his cousin who was a frontline nurse in New Jersey. She caught COVID-19. It passed in a couple of days. But she gave it to her husband who was overweight and had diabetes. He had to go to the hospital with lung problems. They gave him hydroxychloroquine and zinc. He was home in two days. The only reason there's this war against hydroxychloroquine is that it negates Bill Gates' vaccine. And he says the media will not report how much Gates and his vaccine partners stand to make from this agenda. Why? Why? Why And and by also denying that hydroxychloroquine works, he says it allows them to take even more draconian steps to impose lockdowns and imprison people for violating their decrees. That certainly seems to have a political overtone. And of course, the retaliation against anybody who stands up against the left and their agenda is vicious. The lead doctor in the press conference before the Supreme Court that YouTube took down was fired. Then they had their website shut down. Martin Armstrong says welcome to the real America where freedom of speech is nothing more than a bedtime story. Check out the link all included in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
0: Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. And once again, just a quick reminder, if you haven't gone to FireSteel.com, this is one of the most affordable and portable pieces of preparedness items that you could have in your grasp. I mean, literally, it will fit in your pocket. You can strike a very healthy spark. You can have a fire started to cook with, to warm with, to purify your water, whatever it may be. And it's, it's very, very effective. FireSteel.com. It's really that simple. Let your eyes show you what the difference is. I mean, they've got plenty of uh, demos, uh, plenty of videos there that can show you. And you really should uh, consider this. Maybe this is the kind of gift you should be giving uh, you know, for the gift-giving season that's fast approaching. All right, welcome back to the show. We left on the note of the media's conspiracy against the people. This was an article from uh, Martin Armstrong from Armstrong Economics. And I look, I'm not trying to tell you that you need to be hunkered down and all paranoid that everything in the media is, is all a conspiracy. But we, we started out talking about how propaganda runs the world. Propaganda is what keeps people in the dark. And if you can accept that premise, then it's not so hard to recognize that there is an all-out war going on right now to convince all of us that the, the thing we need to do most of all is eliminate our freedom under the pretense of public health. I don't think that we've ever seen in the history of the world any other government use public health as the excuse to destroy what people have worked for to alter the economy and to strip us all of our right to be free of tyranny. Martin Armstrong says never has anyone ever been quarantined in thousands of years unless they were sick. You don't quarantine the entire population. Come on. Lepers were sent to colonies, but they didn't lock down the entire population. Look at the narrative that much of our media is following. And it's not so hard to see that they are not on your side. They do not exist to keep you informed and to keep you empowered about what is happening in the world so that you can make the best possible decisions. They're trying to steer you in a predictable direction. And you and I, one of the best things that we can do to prevent that from happening is to simply become an unplayable piece on that chessboard. And we do that by becoming better thinkers, more clear, independent thinkers, so we don't have to depend on them to tell us how things are going. All right, let's talk for a moment about the future, shall we? Jeff Minnick asks the question, what will the future think of us? And this isn't just nasal gazing, gazing rather. This this isn't, you know, people looking at their belly button, and, well, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, you know, as they contemplate life. Where did all that lint come from anyway? No, there There's a very serious question here because we have blind spots. And the way that we know this is because you go back and you read old books. You look at at, uh, the way people thought in the 19th century, the way they thought in the 18th century. And there were some things they were absolutely correct about. You can go back a lot further, too. I mean, you want to really get into it. Go back 3,300 years. I mean, go all the way back to the beginning of the great books of Western civilization. Every society, every civilization has its blind spots. So it's pretty safe to assume, since we are human beings, after all, we have them as well. And C.S. Lewis used to talk about how sometimes we find ourselves in a position of, I think he called it chronological snobbery. Well, yeah, but those people were a bunch of backwards rubes wearing their togas and, you know, with grape leaves in their hair and blah, blah, blah. They, they They were so less enlightened than we were. And and if that's the way you feel, I would say, okay, well, when's the last time you picked up anything written by those ancient Romans or those ancient Greeks? Because you'll find it is not, this is not kiddie stuff. This is not, uh, you know, your basic reading primer that you uh, picked up in school. If they were that primitive, you would think we'd have, an we'd, we'd probably give out an extra box of crayons with every book, every volume, rather, of the, the great books of Western civilization. But we don't. And if you've read it, you understand what I'm talking about. It is There was some very serious contemplation. Now, there were some things that they got wrong. I've told you Aristotle makes a very principled defense of slavery as a good thing. It's a natural thing. Somebody's got to work while the thinkers are doing the thinking, you know, and to him it just made perfect sense. I don't think you'd find many people who feel that way today, but that was, that was his blind spot. We have blind spots as well, in Jeff Minnick, in asking what will the future think of us points out that it may be in our interest to address some of those blind spots where we can. He says because of his interest in the past, he loves reading his histories and biographies. He says a particular fantasy is pestering me. What if I could return from the grave in 50 years or more and see what historians of the future might have written of the time in which I have lived, particularly the last 30 years? Why might they, what might they say, for example, about the uh, prevalence of abortion? in an age when all manner of contraceptives can be purchased in our pharmacies and grocery stores? What might they say of our current push for socialism and rioting in our streets? He says, most particularly, these days I wonder, what will they say about the COVID-19 pandemic? Will they scratch their heads in puzzlement, as some of us do now with the response by governments and individuals to this virus? Will those descendants of Herodotus, Livy, and Gibbon condemn communist China for its initial silence about the coronavirus, thereby allowing it to spread around the world? Will they be able to figure out why some governors shoved coronavirus cases into nursing homes, causing many pandemics and many deaths in those facilities? He says perhaps they'll look at our months-long shutdown and quarantine as a necessary measure, or they may view it as an unwarranted policy that did far more harm than good. Will they be astonished that we sometimes banned the use of hydroxychloroquine to check and treat COVID-19? Or will they decide that we were wise to refuse this drug to those in the early stages of the disease? Fifty years down the road, they may be able to untangle all the misinformation surrounding victims of the virus and conclude that science and medicine were politicized and the number of deaths exaggerated. Will they applaud the various measures we're taking to avoid catching the virus, social distancing? Masks, the closing of schools and churches, or will they hoot with laughter at our foolishness? He says they'll likely wonder why we permitted protests and riots, opened our casinos, and made some businesses, quote, essential while forcing schools and churches to close. They may also question why small businesses were forced to lock their doors, many of them forever. The children of today will be tomorrow's historians, youngsters who witnessed firsthand shuttered schoolhouses, the bungling and inefficiency of many online classes, isolation from their friends and the plight of their parents, who, if they were lucky, worked from home, and who, if unlucky, lost their jobs and businesses and were made ill with despair and depression? What kind of prejudices will they bring to their researches, to their research rather and papers? And finally he says, How will these future, future historians judge the performances of our leaders, politicians, scientists and so called experts? Did they behave with prudence, temperance, and justice in the face of disaster? Or will historians regard many of them as failures, men and women who were inept in the execution of their duties, or who even worse, used this virus as a pretext to advance their own careers and agendas? He says, one thing we know for certain, those future judges will take an interest in 2020. I think I agree with him there, by the way. We've said many times, This is going to be one for the history books. Well, Minnick says we are undergoing an event of great historic importance, a crisis with ramifications for our entire culture, our American way of life and the future of our children and grandchildren. The world as we knew it has slipped from beneath our feet. We're entering new territory, a strange and forbidding wilderness that has all of us confused and some of us terrified on our trek. There are too many incompetent guides, few maps, And no compasses, no true north to lead us to the right path. We stagger onward, wary and downhearted, uncertain at this point of our destination. Indeed, of any resolution of this catastrophe that has engulfed us. And he says, here's part of our difficulty. Unlike those future chroniclers of our time, we are simply too close to this cataclysm to stand aside and evaluate it calmly and wisely. Uncertainty breeds fear, and we're experiencing both at the moment. Yet he says, if we're mindful of our available resources, we can find strength as we make this journey. We can take courage from our religious faith, our stout-hearted friends, and our families. We can also find encouragement and help in our history books, the stories of our ancestors who once faced what must have seemed insurmountable odds. He says, the old book tells us, and the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. So Jeff Minnick says, here's a final question. Will we leave to future generations, a house founded upon a rock or a shack built upon sand? His point being that historians in 2070 will know the answer to that question. I don't know about you, but I'm not going down without a fight. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that there's something solid for those who will follow in my footsteps. Will you join me?